Welcome to Stories from the Locker Room, a news hub podcast that interviews sporting greats about their career highlights, lowlights, controversies and legacy. This week, Luke Robinson talks to New Zealand golfing great Michael Campbell, the 2005 US Open champion. All the way from his home in the south of Spain, it's Michael Campbell on Stories from the Locker Room. Kiwi golfer Michael Campbell shocked the world of golf in 2005 when he won the US Open at Pinehurst. And we take you through the emotional journey that was winning a major championship, talking all things golf in his illustrious career. But it wasn't always golf for Campbell. Like most Kiwi boys growing up, he wanted to be an All Black. First throw in by Brian Williams. Peter Whiting and Brian Williams and Colin Meads, you know, they, they were definitely my, my heroes growing up as a kid. And New Zealand have won by 19 points to 16. I played rugby for probably 10 years until I was 15. And I remember playing um, barefoot, you know, back in those days, back in the 70s. My ultimate goal was to be an All Black, um, but I knew it wasn't big enough, strong enough, fast enough. I just knew it wasn't good enough. And it was good for me to realise that it was a blessing in disguise, really. I was very sporty. I played um, basketball, I played rugby, obviously, played golf, I played tennis, I played badminton, squash. I was very active as a kid. And my parents said to me, Michael, you've got to choose. Come on, you can't, because they felt like taxi drivers. Because <laughs> you know? every day was a practice day. And then you got game day on Saturday and, and, and sometimes midweek. And so I was very much an active kid, very, uh, what they say, talented. And I just decided to, to focus on softball and, and golf. Our initial neighbour, Frank Reedy, was um, a keen golfer. And so he dragged up Dad for the first time. He started playing a lot and he used to pull me out, um, catting for him at you know, those cold winter mornings. And he used to coerce me with a meat pie and a strawberry milkshake. When I was like probably eight years old, picked up a club. And you know, ever since then, I haven't you know, stopped. <laughs> Growing up in Tetahi Bay as a Māori kid, choosing golf was rare, but he wanted to prove to everybody that he was the real deal. But I never told my friends to play golf. Because back in those, don't forget, it's got a stigma of, of being a snobby sport, older sport. And for, for a young Māori father to, to play golf professionally, it was just unheard of. So we had this, uh, this school trip to a golf course. By this time, I'm 15 years old and three or four handicapped, so I was, I was pretty good. And then I get the bus ride, full of people, full of kids, my classmates, and I said to myself, what do I do? Do I pretend not to play golf? Pretend to miss it? Shank it? But um, I thought, oh, I can't do that. So I started hitting these golf balls, right? And everyone stopped and go, wow, that's so cool. I was accepted. All my Māori and Polynesian buddies were playing rugby. I used to go and watch them play all the time. You know, I was envious. But I wanted to prove to the world, the whole world, that Māori can play golf. When I was 15, I made the under-18 under Wellington team and then made the men's team the same year. And then made the New Zealand team when I was 18, maybe. In 91, we went, well, 92, sorry, uh, went to the Eisenhower Trophy and won that. For the first time, it was pretty cool to have two Māori fellas in there, myself and Philip Tatarangi and Grant Moorhead and Stephen Scar, who were there. 
that was a wonderful experience to win and to be the first team from New Zealand to win the uh, the Eisenhower Trophy was pretty cool. The funny thing about it was that we were like probably seven shots behind the American team with nine holes to play. Uh, and I think we won by five. So we picked up 12 shots and the closing ceremony was delayed. Why? Because all they had was the um, American National Anthem. Not the New Zealand one. <laughs> all the officials had to go down to the nearest uh, embassy, New Zealand embassy, to get the, uh, uh, the National Anthem from New Zealand. Philip, he finished first as an individual, often his second in a, as an individual. So basically we became first and second in the world. Two Māori fellas, that, that, that's, that's pretty cool. It was definitely the, the, you know, obviously the pinnacle of amateur golf. Where can you go after that? But you, I think you, you kind of know yourself inside um, that you know it's time to go, to go to the next level, which is obviously professional golf. And it was a huge jump. My coach at the time was Mel Tung. And Mel said to me, I think it's time to go. And I agreed with him too. Um, I was really, I was lucky enough to win the um, Australian Amateur Championship, which gave me five starts on the Australasian PGA Tour. I had a good start. Uh, I finished seventh in my first one, second in my second one, and won my third one. And I thought, this professional golf isn't isn't that hard. <laughs> I, was, I was very cocky, overconfident, obviously. Went to European Tour the same year, 93. Uh, played five times, got my ass absolutely kicked. And I thought, okay, time to go home and reset and, and uh, work even harder. Campbell's first glimpse of major success came at the 1995 British Open, where he fired a low third round to lead by two shots heading into the final round. But admits his mentality was wrong. He knew he wouldn't win. I wasn't prepared uh, mentally. Physically, was fine. My swing was great. I mean, I hit the ball so well that week. But I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew. Uh, I just wasn't prepared. The, the overwhelming um, attention, uh, the pressure... Uh, I remember after the third round going into the media tent for the first time uh, and I'm faced with 300 reporters in front of me, you know, I'm up on the podium there asking these questions. I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not, I can't do this. My preparation wasn't the same. Big mistake here. IMG wanted to impress me and uh, organise a helicopter because I was staying over by Dundee. And it's like a five-minute helicopter ride as opposed to an hour in the car. They dropped me off near the golf course. I thought, well, what a great idea. I remember waiting at the, at the helipad probably for like half an hour. And it still hasn't arrived. It's half an hour late. An hour later, it turned up. Uh, I was rushing to the driving range. I only had like 15, 20 minutes to warm up because it was late. And then rushing to the first tee. And I just thought, it's the last thing I need right now. Instability or a stupid mistake. Stupid mistake. I changed my routine. It was working before, why change it? But anyway. The Kiwi golfer did something in 1999 not many people can say they've done, beating Tiger by five at the Johnny Walker Classic. But his most heartfelt win came in 2000 at his national open in Paraparaumu. Hello, hello, yes! <laughs> Michael Campbell, how about that for a birdie? I've won, what's 15 times around the world. Obviously my favourite win is the US Open. The second one is New Zealand Open, without doubt, without doubt, no question. They just keep coming, these birdie putts from Campbell. Yeah, I mean, emotionally, yes. I mean, uh, for, to win the National Open is, is the best thing in the world. To do it in front of my home crowd, because I was living in Wellington at the time, and it was played at Padpalarumu, so it was uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of my family were there. I think a hundred and something were there watching me play, and plus the rest of the people there watching me play. That was definitely the highlight of my career.
and and, and it was a very emotional day and seeing my father and my mum and my sister and you know all my all my relatives my nephews and yeah it, it was just so 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 cool he's got it michael campbell new zealand's first golfing champion of the new millennium campbell continued to win a couple of times around the world bringing him to 2004 arguably his worst year on tour and in the build-up to the 05 US Open, one of the biggest sporting moments New Zealand has ever seen nearly didn't happen. The end of 2004, I basically, I think the best finish was like 30th. And then I went to uh, the Desert Swing and played, I think, five events, missed every single cut. So it was pretty bad for like probably six months. I didn't win for the first time in 2004 because normally I won something every year. But yeah, so it was 2004 was a pretty bad year. Why I don't know. Maybe I just you know I relaxed a little bit more. You know, I've I was doing okay financially as well, and my boys were great, and you know everything was good. So I took my foot off the accelerator a little bit. You could say uh, I practiced less, went to the gym less, things like that. I said to my coach at the time, Jonathan Yarwood, uh, I said, Jonathan, mate, I need to change something here. So I flew to him, Orlando, spent five weeks pounding balls, going to the gym, working out. And then we found a certain key in my backswing and it was a real simple thing in the backswing and that was it. It was like, all of a sudden, a light turned on. And you know, I always had this, this thing about psychology. Right, psychology and and you know the physical part of the game. You've got to have the two blend together as one. I believe that completely. But if you know you're swinging at shit, how is it possible to visualize a shot straight when you know you're swinging at bad? I don't care how mentally strong you are. Yes, you do make compensations, but if you know you're swinging at great, technically good, and it looks good and you feel good, that brings more confidence to you to picture that shot clearer. So I found this key in my backswing and something on my downswing, and then I, started, I finished in the top 10, top 5, top 3. So all of a sudden I've gone from, you know, having a really bad six months to all of a sudden this big, huge turnaround, complete, you know, 180. I was making these top 10s, top 5s. And then uh, the US Open qualifying was 45-minute drive from my house, and I wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to actually go to the qualifying. But my wife at the time kicked me out of the house. I said, you just go. You know, it doesn't matter. It's only a 45-minute drive. But it was, if I had to fly there, I probably wouldn't have gone because I had like four weeks in a row. I was tired. I just got home that Sunday night. I was first off on Monday morning at 7.30 in the morning. So it was, I was in no mood to go and play golf. Anyway, I <laughs> qualified on the number. I was the last person to qualify. Steve Webster, I'm playing with Steve Webster. We're playing the last hole. Right, Steve Webster, short par four, hits it's 10 feet, I hit it's nine feet. I had to I had to move my marker because of my marker, my ball was on his line. So I moved my marker to the side, and I, obviously when he hit it, hit the putt, and it saw it, we actually went slight to the right. Because I would have aimed kind of like probably, it was like a right edge putt, I thought, right? But it was actually a straight putt. So I saw his putt go to the, even go to the right a little bit. So I aimed left center and went in the hole. Cambo can't put his finger on exactly one reason behind the 05 Open, but insists it was a mix of lots of small things that fell into place. 
taking small lessons off different people in the build-up to Pinehurst. I decided to play a little game with myself. Um, I said to myself, okay, if I play well this week, top five, buy myself a, a Porsche. <laughs> so on the, my golf ball, I wrote, and how normally you have like a little mark, a dot or whatever, I wrote 911 on my golf ball as, uh, as extra motivation. So I played a game within the game, you could say. And that week, yeah, I was playing great, but my putting was horrendous. So we decided to go somewhere else. We went to this golf course about 20 minutes away to get away from the, the craziness of a major championship. We spent probably three hours on my putting and all of a sudden I found a certain key. We got back on Tuesday, putting felt great. So it was a combination of a lot of things. Wednesday, I played with the practice round with Vijay Singh. He was sitting these amazing little spinny bunker shots. And Vijay Singh playing from the front greenside bunker. Mate, what are you doing? Because I struggle with my bunker shots. And he goes, oh, I'll just do that, do that, do that, do that. So during the course of the week, in seven bunkers, up and down every single one, and hold one. Once again, you know, these things are coming together. Steve Webster with his putt, myself and Jonathan going to a different place, uh, to a different place to practice putting. VJ gave me a bunker shot tip. You know, all these sort of things come together. Three rounds into the 05 US Open, Cambo sat down with his good friend Retief Goosen who at the time was the defending champion and held a three-shot lead heading into the final round. I remember having uh, lunch with uh, Teeth Goose. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. We had lunch together before the last round. I mean, he was like four shots ahead of me, or I can't remember, even more, I can't remember. Thinking, you know, he's defending champion. He's won twice before. There's no way I'm going to win this. So I kind of conceded to him already, you know. <laughs> I said, well, play well, mate. You know, I hope, hope you can win your third US Open. Tiger was a few shots back from me, and you know, he's always a threat. So I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm on the meat in the sandwich here. Once again, top five will buy me a Porsche. That's fine. <laughs> so I was happy. But then all of a sudden, I see Goose just falling off the, off the leaderboard. And I saw this other guy coming up the leaderboard, and that was um, Tiger. So I'm thinking, OK, this is going to be fun. Look at this shot by Tiger. I remember standing on the 10th tee. And uh, it was basically myself and Tiger left. All the rest were like three, four shots behind us. Nine holes to play. And I think I had a one-shot lead off a Tiger. He was a group in front of me. And I'm standing on the 10th tee, probably for like seven minutes, 10 minutes, because the guy, his partner, was looking for his golf ball. Seven minutes seems like an hour <laughs> staying on that tee. And, you know, you have a choice to choose what words and to talk to yourself or self-talk. Or I remember standing there trying to fill up that empty cup of all positive thoughts. I was prepared this time, uh, definitely prepared mentally, more so than ever. Campbell explains how he dealt with the tiger roar, which has been described by many golfers as the most intimidating noise in golf. Cambo did something different to cope with that. When I was in that moment, I've been in that bubble, out there playing, nine holes to play, I've got the best player in the world that will ever play this game. He was obviously the favourite. Yes! There was so many people there watching the last nine holes. But <laughs> I did something once again which no one, no one taught me. No South Gods has taught me this. I don't know. It came from the golfing gods. Uh, I don't know where I got it from. No idea. But it just came to me. I remember so every time I heard a roar, I knew it was for Tiger. I took my hat. My kid said to me, what are you doing, Michael? I said, well, I'm, I'm thanking them. So although they were roaring for Tiger, in my mind mentally, 
I thought they were roaring for me. Yeah! Golf has played for 20 years, absolutely. I mean, you get under those extreme conditions like I did in the last nine holes, or even before then, uh, the last 18 holes, you could say, it all comes down to those, those, those little things, words and thoughts and feelings. 10 years ago, I wasn't ready to win. I was ready that day, that's for sure. I had a big why. It's a pretty powerful thing. It was my time to show the world that the Māori people can play golf and win majors. So 10 years from Larry Wolfe and slip away to Michael Campbell. He's going to win the US Open. And when that putt finally dropped on the 72nd hole, you felt something only two other Kiwi golfers have ever felt, the feeling of winning a major championship. It was an um, incredible situation to be in, to beat him under the extremities of a major last nine holes. It's a typical David and Clive kind of scenario there. You can't get better on that, can you? So much stuff goes in your mind when you win, win a major. And the first thing I did was I looked towards the heavens above me and thanked my tupuna, uh, basically my ancestors who passed on before me, who gave me strength. Uh, but that, that uh, the exchange of words between myself and my caddy, who's also a Kiwi, um, Michael Wake, I think we were pretty much stunned on what we just did together. But there was another Kiwi waiting for him as he walked off the green. Tiger Woods' caddy, Steve Williams, shared a special moment with Michael. I mean, I'll never forget that too. Uh, Steve is obviously the ultimate professional. He wants his man to win, but uh, nothing better than to have a second choice. You know, me winning a, a, a Kiwi, and uh, he said to me, uh, uh, you know, very strong words to me, something like in the lines of, um, all the people uh, back home, he's going to be very proud of you, Michael. Well done. And uh, I respect Stevie. Uh, he's a great caddy. He's, you know, what he's done for the game of golf is incredible. It's okay for the, what the great players, including Norman, as well as Ray Floyd and obviously Tiger. Campbell takes us into the mind of Tiger Woods after the final round. Even after it, he's still in the heat of the battle as the Kiwi encounters Woods in the men's bathroom. I took my hat off. I was washing my face, trying to get myself, you know, kind of ready for the uh, presentation and for TV. <laughs> and I met, I heard this, this kind of flush behind me. It was Tiger. <laughs> So you imagine the whole whole um, locker room is empty because everyone's gone. I remember facing the basin, washing my, my face and my hands, and he's next to me right here, next basin along, and he just he's washing his hands. Didn't say much to me. I'm thinking this is quite strange. We're good, pretty good buddies, you know. And um, he walks away. I thought, okay, that's a strange reaction. Taps me on the shoulder and he goes, "Well done, Cambo." I could see now in, in reflection that he was pretty much still in the head of the battle. You know, he was pissed off he, he lost, uh, which is fair enough. And although it was hard for him to say that, you know, well done, uh, I still respect that a lot. And then obviously after winning the US Open, yes, I bought my my, uh, my my Porsche. So during the course of the last round, I, I was actually I was actually visualising the colour of the of the car, the interior. You know, now if I'm going to get an uh, engine upgrade as well. Um, so I was my mind was distracted actually from the actual big picture was winning the US Open. I was actually focusing more on my car. Campbell admits that after he won the US Open, his career declined because he had reached what he describes was his pinnacle. But he didn't care. He had proved to the world that a Māori kid from New Zealand could tackle the world's best. 
and my mindset was that I, I climbed my Everest. <laughs> I, since I was 12 years old, I wanted to win a major for, for my people, you know, and I've done that. And it's my fault I didn't reset my goals. I practiced less, uh, worked out less, played less, spending more time doing a lot of charity stuff, which is so fulfilling spiritually uh, and for the heart and soul. Cambo has spent lots of time travelling and been to many countries around the world, but his favourite moment came at the house of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. The downhill challenge, it was basically Southern uh, Africa versus Australasia. It was played in Joburg and uh, we uh, went, were invited to uh, his house and Greg Norman was my captain then and uh, we're standing on the line like this on both sides and Nelson Mandela was sitting there and along came the tribe, the tribe with their spears and, and, their, and their shields towards us, challenging us and uh, there was amazing, incredible energy they brought. Greg Norman kind of like shows me with his shoulder and he goes, Mocky got a reply. I said, what? You can't reply to what? He got reply to that challenge. You know what it's like. And they're like, I said, by myself? He goes, yeah. He goes to me, I'm the captain. You do what I say. And I thought, okay, Greg Turner and Frank Novolo as well, they were there, but they didn't join in. Uh, and I did the haka by myself uh, in front of Nelson Mandela. <laughs> well, I've had a wonderful life, you know, and uh, I've experienced so many different things. When I retired back in 2014, I think it was, yeah, it was a very easy decision to make. <laughs> I was ready. I didn't touch a golf club, not once for 18 months, and I really enjoyed that. Just being normal, you know, being normal, going cooking for my boys, going to the supermarket. I spent 20 something years on tour playing and catching planes, you know, been away from the family. I just had enough. You know, golf is a balance, so life's a balance. And uh, it's not, golf isn't that really that important, really. The health of your children and your wife are more important than, than performing well. So it was time to have a little break, which I really enjoyed. I moved to Spain. And we bought a house on this property called Villa Patagona. It's a big, huge estate with three golf courses. And funny enough, six months later, the uh, previous uh, academy left. And I thought, wow, this is a perfect opportunity. Established a nice uh, golf academy here in, uh, in southern Spain, Andalusia. It's going to be a wonderful platform to pass on my experiences and knowledge to these young kids. I'm teaching all young kids who are just turned pro or still good amateurs, which is fantastic. That's the whole purpose. Of, of me doing what I did, which is to inspire, inspire kids. Simple as that. If you put your mind to it, and yes, you're going to have people saying to you, you're not good enough, you're not talented enough, you're not strong enough, fast enough. But if you think you can do it, you can. It's simple as that. We're all going to have tall dreams, absolutely. If you don't, you, you, know, you, you don't exist. Now, over 50, he still enjoys playing with his mates and looks ahead to the next chapter of his life. I turned 50 and um, I played a few events on the Seniors Tour last year. It's been fun seeing all my old friends. <laughs> I enjoy you know, playing again you know, with my mates and just having some fun with it. Uh, oh, they're still competitive. Oh my goodness, they're still competitive. Uh, it's great being out there again and it's more relaxed. You, know, you only play three rounds of golf, and, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Because it's one thing that you know, I, I love competing. I enjoy that. Michael Campbell won 15 times around the world, collecting wins on five different tours and earning over $23 million over the course of his career. 
But his win at the 2005 US Open will go down in sporting folklore in this country, as a small-town Māori kid from New Zealand by the name of Michael Campbell will forever be etched into the US Open trophy. You've been listening to News Hub's Stories from the Locker Room. Next time, we chat to former Tall Black and current general manager of the Brooklyn Nets, Sean Marks. 